0: I invite all of you that are here with me, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, we have reached a section. This is the third of three parables on a similar topic that we'll hear about. I'll be reading chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is. "...may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm another to his business, while the rest seized his servants When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. I once received uh, an invitation to attend a special event in the life of someone I knew and and cared about, and it was was printed on the fancy paper and and embossed and colorful and script that you can barely read, and there were more envelopes than I knew what to do with and how to use to respond, and I was excited, I cared about this person, I wanted to attend their, their special event, I wanted to reserve my spot except for one problem, they forgot to tell us what date. Simple omission. And it left me in this awkward position of not knowing how to respond to the invitation. I didn't know if I should say, it depends. Maybe I'll be there. I wanted to, but I was confused. I didn't know how to respond because the call was not clear. And I wonder if many of us at times feel similarly confused by the invitation and the call of God. See, God promises great blessing for those who respond to His invitation, and He promises judgment for those who respond wrongly. But if we're res- to respond to the call, we need to understand it and what it means. Now, unlike the invitation I got to the special event, the problem with that was, my, was, was the invitation, not my understanding of it. But the problem with God's call is that we often don't understand what we're hearing. The problem is not with God, it's with us. And so as Jesus gives us the third parable in His series on rejecting God, let us consider that the two sons in the parable we looked at a few weeks ago, two sons were called to do the Father's work. One rejected the call and the other didn't. The tenants in the vineyard rented a vineyard from a landlord and rejected the landowner's claim to provide the fruit that they owed him. Here now we have people rejecting the King's invitation. And Jesus tells these three parables in a row, like a little sermon series, warning people not to reject God's call. And so we're going to look closely at this parable this morning to learn better about the call of God to make sure that we don't misunderstand the calling that He gives us, the importance of it. And as we understand it better, we are better able to respond. The first thing we see is that the call takes priority. The the first group of people uh, who were invited were guilty of rejecting the invitation. And in doing so, they were rejecting the king, as we're going to see in a little bit. But we don't need to worry about that, right? I mean, where are we right now? We're in a church, None of us is sitting here rejecting God. None of us is is here as as others raise their hands in worship. We're raising our fists. I reject you, God. I hope. But what this parable will help us understand is that rejecting God is not only a case of active hostility. But all who do not respond to His call properly reject Him. Let's see what happens here. In verses 2 and 3, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. He sends out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, wedding feasts were a big deal. They still are. Wedding feasts are a huge deal. It's amazing what people will spend, even today, on a meal at a wedding. It amazes me. Um, How much more so a king hosting a wedding for his son... In a culture where such hospitality and feasting is, is, a, is an action of honor and status and prestige. What a feast that would be. So, right off, we're getting a different sense from this parable than we got from the previous two that we looked at last week and the week before. The other parables were about work, the sons being called to work, the tenants in the vineyard owing something. These parables were rejecting the call of what we owe God. But this, the kingdom of heaven, is a feast, it's a celebration. And they're rejecting the call to come and celebrate and delight and feast. It says those invited did not come, which we need to understand what that's really saying. It's not simply a matter of, oh, I'm sorry, we're busy that day, we can't make it. Now you see what would happen in this culture is when you're planning an event like a wedding, a great feast, you send out the invitations way in advance, our equivalent of a save the date. Except you couldn't give a date because timing and things were a little less precise. And so you just sent out notice, hey, I'm going to have a wedding feast for my son, you're invited. And, and, and your friends and, and peers and others, they'd all respond, yes, we'll be there. You just didn't say no to something like that. How much less so would you say no when the king invites you to his son's wedding, right? So all these people, they had responded to an earlier invitation. They said, we're going to be there. We hear your call, we're going to respond, we're going to be there. And then, once you got everything in order, you got everything all arranged, everything was all right, you you got the feast ready, and then you sent out the messengers to everybody who responded, you said, now is the time. It's here. The day is here. And what we're supposed to see is that God, long in advance, had been sending messages to his people, telling them, the day is coming, the day is coming, my kingdom is coming. And then when Jesus arrives, the message is, the kingdom is here. You who who have been prepared for so long by God's law and by the prophets and by His kings and His people, you have been prepared. You've said you're ready to respond. The day is here. Come to the feast. And they say no. Verse 4, He sent other servants saying, look, maybe I wasn't clear. See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. And they do the unthinkable. They say no, they back out, and not in a good and gracious way either. Verse 5, they pay no attention, and they leave. One to his farm, another to his business. They're not even busy. They're just going about their daily stuff. There's no emergency, there's no conflict in their schedule, just rejection. And we need to understand what's at the heart of that, what that communicates. You see, if, if, you, if you call your friend, and you say, hey, I've Thought we'd get together, I haven't talked in a, in a few weeks, let's get together over coffee or let's, you know, why don't you bring your family over our house and we'll, we'll have a meal together and your friend looks at the calendar and says, oh, you know what, it's just kind of a bad week for us, we're, we're kind of, you know, we're recovering from some illness or we got a lot going on, we just don't have the time, let's do it another time. That's fine. You know, nobody's feelings are hurt, everything's okay. But when a young man approaches a young woman and says, hey, Can we get dinner together? I'd like to take you out to dinner. And she says, no, I'm busy that day. I didn't even tell you what day it was. (laughs) I'm busy. She's not rejecting the invitation, is she? She's rejecting him. And that's what's happening here. It's not a rejection of the invitation. It's a rejection of the one who does the inviting. And you see in verse 6, it's personal. They don't just send his servants away. They seize them. They abuse them. They kill them. Clearly, in rejecting the call, they're rejecting the king. The young man who ends up dateless feels sad, and rightfully so, but the king, upon being rejected, feels rage. Because in a society where honor is like currency, it's like gold, he has been deeply, deeply shamed by this rejection. And so he responds strongly in verse 7 the king was angry he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city so so what happened why would they reject the invitation of the king it's because the king wasn't their priority you see the call should take priority but he wasn't important to them their attention and their time is drawn to other things we see in verse 5 they pay no attention they went off one to his farm and another to his business It wasn't just the ones who murdered His servants that rejected the call. It wasn't just the defiant ones who said, No! It was the ones who heard the invitation and looked down at their phone and just walked away. They never even opened the email to see the invitation. It's the busy. It's the distracted. In Luke's version of this parable, we see what some of their excuses actually were. In Luke 14, Jesus says, They all alike began to make excuses, and the first said, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please, leave me, please have me excused. Would any of you buy a property that you have not looked at? I don't think so. It's a flimsy excuse. The uh, Another one says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Would you buy a new vehicle without checking? Or let's say this, would you buy a used vehicle without checking to make sure it runs? You don't buy a five-yoke of oxen and, and then decide to make sure that they can actually plow. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I can never come. I have no social life now. No. These are ridiculous excuses. They are the, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of the young lady saying, no, I have to wash my hair that night. Okay, these excuses are not legit. We are busy people. We live in a busy world, and there are 21st century equivalents to checking a field or checking and examining your oxen, things that would demand our attention and our time when the king calls. He says, come, follow me. And we say, hang on, I need to get my career established first. He says, come, follow me, and we say, let me get my retirement squared away. I've got to move around some investments, and as soon as the the market is stable, you know, then I'll follow. I'm I'm too busy with something else right now. I just started this new series. Let me finish this series. I'm watching. Uh, we we have no time to gather with God's people. We have no time to seek the lost. We have no time to serve the needy. No time to discipline our habits because we've got things to do. We are busy people. And Jesus warns us that when we do that, we are rejecting His call just as much as if we raised our fist to the sky and defied the Lord. Practically, it's the same thing. You are too busy for your God. When we reject the call that He gives us, we reject Him. Many are called, but those who have other priorities are not chosen. What we instead need is the, the attitude of the disciples. There was, uh, in, uh, in John's Gospel, there was a time when Jesus spoke some harsh words. And people began to get uncomfortable with the things that He was saying. And so they started to leave. And even some of His disciples, not the twelve, but some of His disciples started leaving. And Jesus turned to the twelve. And in John chapter 6, verses 67 and 68, Jesus says to the twelve, You guys want to go as well? Is, are you going to make your exit now? Is this too much for you? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Whatever it is that would distract you from the call of God, whatever it is that would demand your time and your attention and your devotion and lead you to say, oh, please have me excuse when you're faced with the invitation of God. It does not have the words of life. We just confessed in our confession of sin this morning. Help us to see that these things that we pine for are shadows, but You are the substance. They are the shifting, but You are the anchor. You alone have the words of eternal life. These things would distract you away from the feast and keep you from the kingdom of God. The call Friends, the call of God takes priority. The second thing we see about the call in this parable is that it ignores worthiness. The call ignores worthiness. Now, who do you think would have originally been invited to the feast in celebration of the Son of the King? It's it's the who's who of the culture, right? It's going to be the wealthy, the well-connected, the important people, the powerful people, the influential people. People who by any human standard deserve to be at the feast. And after they reject him, look what the king says in verse 8. He says to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They were not worthy of my feast. Which means they don't deserve it. This is important. See, all these, all these things that make someone, in our mind, worthy or special or lovable, Or acceptable, whether it's good looks, success, family connections, an honorable career, good theology, whatever it is that makes us worthy in someone's eyes, the king says, No, that doesn't make you worthy of my feast. The table is set, the food is ready, and the invited guests are not coming because they are not worthy. And the king says, I will not let my feast go to waste. He says, my seats at my feast will be filled. And we would think surely he would go out and find some other worthy people. He would would reach out to dignitaries in other towns and other cities. Or he will will go out and examine people in his city and find out who who is worthy to be in the presence of the king. But he doesn't do that. He sends out his servants with this command in verse 9. Go to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Did he give them any, any standard, any qualification, any who to ask? No, he just says, bring them in, all of them. And they do it. In verse 10, they went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. What's the qualification of being invited to the feast? Is it, is it that you, you're. Yeah, 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 I'm hearing it. Yeah, okay, you've got a pulse. That's it. That's what my notes say, actually. You know, it's not that they went out and looked for who was doing good deeds in the street. They didn't go out and look for the people who were dressed nicely enough to be there. If you had a pulse and you were on the street that day, you got brought in to the palace, to the feast of the king. Now, by that standard, could anybody boast on why they were there? Could anybody look at anyone that didn't come to the feast and be like, ha ha, I'm better than you? Oh, those people that aren't at the feast, they're horrible people. No. No. There's no basis for that. Could any of them leave the feast and then brag and talk to other people about how special they were for being in the king's presence that day? No. Whatever honor they received, it was a gift. It ignored their worthiness or unworthiness. It was a gift given in grace. Jesus makes this clear in verse 10 when he says that the servants gathered both the bad and the good. The call of the king takes no account of our worthiness. In fact, other than their credentials, what's the big difference between the first group and the second group? The ones who rejected and didn't come to the feast and the ones who did end up at the feast. The main difference is the type of call they received. The first call that was rejected, that was an invitation. Just as the call of the gospel goes out to all the world. Joel chapter 2, verse 32 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is what we call the external call of the gospel. It is the invitation that goes out to all the world. In fact, Jesus even is going to say in a few chapters that that until the gospel of the kingdom is preached in every nation, until that call reaches everywhere, the end will not come. The, The external call, the invitation has to go out. Many will be called, but few are chosen, verse 14 says. Being chosen is a different kind of call. The second call, the, the ones brought in from the streets, they weren't just invited, they were gathered. They were herded up and collected and brought in the door. This is the call we see in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Not everybody who hears the call is chosen and will make it. But all that the Father gives him are chosen. They are called in a different way. The first call invites us, the second call gathers us. The first one invites, the second one gathers, the internal call of the gospel. I had a, an experience of this calling once. Uh, I was uh, serving and studying abroad in, in China and, and there was a, a holiday, a national holiday coming up and there was to be a big celebration and it, we're talking thousands of people and and food and music and decorations, and, and a very important part of every celebration in this culture is performances. You know, you get people up on stage to do a performance and they'll sing a song or, or do a dance or just do something, you know, to entertain everybody. And, uh, and when the day of the celebration came, uh, myself along with uh, many of the other foreign students that were studying in, in, uh, in that school, uh, we were invited to do a performance. Invited was the word they used invited in the sense that they drove a bus up to the door of our dormitory and, and knocked on our doors and brought us downstairs without telling us where we were going and put us in the van and drove us to the venue and took us to the stage and said, and Now you will perform for us a song from your home country. We were invited to do that. That is the gospel call. It's not, hey, are you interested in doing this? Because you know what we would have said if they said you want to get in front of 3,000 people and saying this land is your land? You know, (laughs) no. That's not the call of the gospel. That's the invitation of the gospel. The external call. Many get that call. We receive the, the internal call. The compelling call that gathers you in. That brings you in the door and makes sure that you're there. It doesn't care if you're worthy or not. It ignores that. That's how the call of the Gospel works. It gathers you up and brings you into the feast. Not because you're better than the other people on the street. Not because you had something they didn't, but because God was gracious to you in Jesus Christ. So the call that takes priority is the call that ignores your worthiness. It doesn't care whether you deserve it or not. Lastly, we see that the call brings obligation. I think if we'd written this parable and if we were telling this story... I know at least if I was, I would have ended it right there, verse 10. That is a happy ending. The parable begins with people rejecting the feast and the king having no one at his feast, and it ends with the house filled and people rejoicing, and there are people celebrating because they don't even deserve to be there, and they're there in the palace of the king. But Jesus tells this story, and he goes on. And so we need to see what he felt was important for us to see at the end of the happy ending. And that's verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. I mean, if we're, if we're thinking in terms of the parable, it might make sense. I mean, if they were literally gathered off the street, nobody's walking around, well, a few of us are walking around dressed appropriate for a wedding on the street. But you have to go with, with the, the genre of a parable here. It doesn't always follow logical structure. The expectation was if you're at a wedding, you're, you're dressed for a wedding. I mean, I want you to imagine if you are hosting a wedding for somebody and you're the, the host or the hostess and you've organized everything and arranged everything and it's a big deal and as you're walking around making sure that everything's all taken care of and you're looking at the guests and everybody's all dressed to the nines and looking real nice and then there's one guy, you know, that guy, who, who's, who's in his swimming trunks and, and a tank top t-shirt. And, and he's not like embarrassed about it and like trying to hide, like how did I even get in here? You know, he's like, He's bold. He's like, ha, look at me. You you guys are wearing suits and dresses. and ah, They don't care. Nobody cares how you dress here. That's what's going on. And the king sees that. You know, if somebody came like that to an event you organized, what is their attitude towards you as the host or as the hostess? They're making a fool of you. They're mocking you. They're showing you no respect. And the king sees this and in verse 12 confronts him and says to him, friend, friend, how did you even get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. That word doesn't mean he just kept his mouth shut because you know, he pleads the fifth. You know, it didn't mean that he just didn't know what to say. He was embarrassed like he didn't have enough to wear and so he was just ashamed. No, that word speechless is more along the lines of you know when you're... Hand is in the cookie jar, and mom shows up in the kitchen and is like, uh, I just finished making dinner. What are you doing? And you've got nothing to say, because you know that you're guilty. You know there's nothing you can say to defend what you've done. This man should not have even been let in without the right clothes. If he needed clothes, they could have been provided for him in that culture. Suitable clothes would have been given to him. But he didn't say anything because he knew that he was doing the wrong thing. He was abusing the king's grace. He was brought into a feast he didn't deserve to be at, brought off the streets, out of the crowd, and instead of responding to that grace with humility and appropriate behavior, instead of seeking to honor the one that invited him, he says, hey, I don't think this king cares. I don't think this guy has any standards at all. He's just bringing people in off the streets. Well, then I can do whatever I want. I can wear whatever I want. And because this guest made a choice to dishonor his king, the king rejects him in verse 13 and says to the attendants, bind him up hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because the call of the gospel brings an obligation now remember the context I shared with you. Jesus is telling this parable to, uh, to the religious people to warn them of the dangers of rejecting God's call. And He's shown them this pattern of, of, of the righteous people, the people who have it all together, the people who have good religion, are in danger of rejecting Jesus. And what's going to happen, what they're seeing happen, is that the, the people who don't deserve God's favor, the, the tax collectors, the sinners, the sinners, the prostitutes, the people who are considered the worst of the worst in their society, they're being welcomed. They're being embraced. And Jesus is trying to explain why that's happening. But He wants to address the concern, the question of, you know, if, uh, if these people who aren't living the way God wants them to live are receiving grace, does that mean God just doesn't care? Does that mean He has no concern whatsoever for how we live? He has no standards at all. Grace just means you do whatever you want. Well, no. Jesus wants to address that. That's a deadly way of thinking. Being saved by grace enters us into a covenant agreement with God. And our role in that covenant, in that agreement, is that we will live in a way that honors Him. That we will dress appropriate for the feast. In Romans, Paul is, is describing how, um, how those who for, for centuries had received God's Word and God's promises and then rejected Jesus, how they were like branches being broken off of God's vine. And instead, these people who were not raised in the knowledge of God are being grafted in as, as new branches. The, the Gentiles and the sinners are being brought in and put on the great vine of God and being able to grow that way. And Paul is addressing this... this Danger that those who saw others rejected and saw that, hey, I've been brought in even though I don't deserve it. God was gracious to me. The danger is that we will misunderstand how to respond to grace. And he says in Romans 11, beginning in verse 19, well, then you might say, other branches were broken off that I could be grafted in. Well, that's true, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the the other branches, the natural branches, He's not going to spare you either if you're guilty of the same thing. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen that God does punish. But God's kindness to you, provided you dress appropriately for the feast, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. It's the same warning that Jesus is giving. Look at the severity of the King towards those who rejected Him. Look at His kindness towards those that He gathered in. But to those who abuse His kindness and still dishonor Him are in danger of being cut off and cast out. At this church, we preach the grace of God. We preach and we believe that God's love is not based on our works. That our salvation is not because we did the right things. But we also preach that grace is given for a purpose. The grace of God has a goal. Jesus did not say, I have come that you might have a life free of guilt and live however you want. No. In John 10, He says it this way. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. The grace of God comes to you so that you can live an abundant life But that life is defined and determined and set out for you, described for you by the Word of God. The world that we live in has an idea of what abundant life should be. Celebrities will tell you what they think abundant life should be. Politicians will tell you what they think abundant life should be. Companies trying to sell you their product will tell you what they think abundant life should be. And if you follow the path that they set you on, you will show up at the banquet halls of God wearing the wrong thing. The grace of God has a goal. I want you to hear this. The grace of God has a goal of freeing you to live the amazing, blessed, joyful life that He describes for you in His Word. The grace of God has the goal of freeing you to live the amazing, blessed, joyful life that He describes for you in His Word. The call of God that finds you in the street and going your own way, turns you around and and brings you into the feast, brings you in with the expectation that when you receive that invitation, you will say, this is awesome. What should I wear? How how do I dress for the occasion? The appropriate dress for the kingdom of God is righteousness. And, And that should be a scary thought if you know your own heart because you know that you fall short. That none of us is capable of of being righteous even when we do our best. We're not perfect. And that's why it's good that the grace of God doesn't end there. The grace of God doesn't find us dirty in the street, bring us into the feast, and expect that we will miraculously change ourselves. No. The gospel is much better than that, brothers and sisters. My favorite picture of this comes from the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah we have a picture of Joshua, who is a priest, And he's standing, uh, representing all the people of God. And he's standing before the throne of God, and and he's filthy. He's filthy. And his filthiness represents the disobedience of God's people. And and as he's standing there in his filth, Satan, the accuser, is is just like walking around, just accusing and pointing out the dirtiness and the filthiness on him before God. And there's nothing Joshua can do about it. And then in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 3, we read this. Now Joshua was was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And then to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head too. The guy shouldn't be without a hat. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. God removes your filthy garments. He removes your sin. Amen? OK, that was a much better response than I got at first service. You're more awake, I hope. God removes your filthy garments. He takes your sin away from you, but the gospel doesn't leave us there. If you showed up at a wedding and realized you, you had on filthy clothes, and somebody said, "Here, let me take off your filthy garments." go ahead in. Something's missing, right? You're still not dressed for the feast. The Gospel doesn't leave us inappropriately dressed. Instead, gives us clean clothes to wear. So when you hear me say that you have to be righteous, and you begin to feel that dread or that sadness that says, I can't. I can't. You're right. But what you need to do is remember the Gospel. The Gospel tells you that you have been given righteousness. Not just in one way. You've been given righteousness in two amazing ways. Number one, when God sees you, He doesn't see the filthy garments. He doesn't see your sin, which is still there because you're still sinning. He instead sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees His Son. You are in Christ, Scripture says. And if you're in Christ, you are welcomed because of His perfection. But there's another way that you are given righteousness. Philippians 2.13 says that it is God who Who works in you to will and to work? When you believe in Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in you is God in you, changing your very desires so that you want what is good and making you able to do the things that He wants you to do. It is God in you to will and to work. That's the gospel. Not just that you're forgiven, but you are made obedient. You are made righteous in every way that matters. In God's sight and in reality, you are made able to obey. Would you then, having been given righteous garments, cast them off and say, I prefer the dirty stuff instead? I would hope you wouldn't. The call, which is to take priority over everything in our life, which ignores the, the worthiness we think we have, that call brings an obligation to live the good life that God enables you to live. To wrap up, I want to look at one other thing about this parable very briefly. Jesus introduces it by saying the kingdom of God is like a feast, a banquet, a celebration. Don't lose sight of that, friends. That's what we're called to. We are called to to celebrate. We are called to joy. We are called to the feast of the wedding of the Son of God. That's why we're here. We're not here, at least I hope you're not. If you are, it's okay, you can stay. But you're not supposed to be here to get a moral pep talk. You're not here to catch up with friends and network. You're not here for a discussion of some hoity toity theology that makes you feel smarter. I mean, any of those things might happen, but that's not why we're here. We are here to celebrate Jesus. That's the call. We, we tried to start you off right this morning if you were here for the first song. Come, Christians, join to sing loud praises to Christ our King. Stand amazed in His presence. Sing how marvelous and how wonderful is His love. That call to come and celebrate should take priority over everything else in your life. That call ignores any worth or status because we're not here to talk about or celebrate or focus on you. I'm sorry. We're just not. I like you, all of you. But we're not here for you. We're not here for me. We're here to celebrate Jesus. That's why your worthiness Your status makes no difference. Good and bad, we come in. And that call brings an obligation, among other things, to extend the call. As we sang at the table of God's presence, all the saints are richly fed, and then with the oil of God's anointing into service, we are led. And we go out into the streets like the servants, and we invite others to come away from rush and hurry, to bring your thirsts, for He will quench them. It is a feast after all. That's the call. The call to joy. It's a call to delight. It's a call to worship. A call to declare and extend and experience the goodness of God. As those who have been invited, and I hope and trust, who have accepted the invitation to come to the feast, let us praise the giver of the feast this morning in prayer. We praise You and thank You, Heavenly Father, for for Your invitation to us. We who on our own would have rejected You either in defiance or busily going our own way and seeking our own things. You have snatched us out of that. And by the power of Your call, Your Holy Spirit has brought us in to Your presence and made us able to appear before You in all the righteousness that You desire to see. We thank You for that, and we pray that we would live faithfully in light of that. pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen.